0: I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Guru's Editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Dr. Bob Rotella, a pioneering sports psychologist in the game of golf whose clients, including Nick Price, Davis Love III, Ernie Els, and Rory McIlroy, have won over 75 majors since 1984. Dr. Rotella has written many books, including How Champions Think, The Unstoppable Golfer, and Golf Is Not a Game of Perfect. He has also worked with LeBron James, the Hendricks Motorsports Team, and other athletes from the NBA, NFL, NCAA, and Major League Baseball, in addition to business leaders, sales executives, and other professionals, Dr. Rotella's philosophy of establishing a routine and detaching from outcomes to stay rooted in the present is beneficial for athletes, coaches, executives, and basically anyone who wants to improve their performance by mastering their mind. Hi, Dr. Rotella. How are you? How
1: are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am just peachy. Where are you? Well, you're peachy. Well, I'm peachy, too. Well, that's good. It's good when everyone's uh, peachy. I'm in West Palm Beach, Florida. Well, I can imagine (laughs) that maybe you are a little
0: peachier than I am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You in New Jersey or somewhere? I
0: am in New Jersey. (laughs)
1: Yeah, beautiful.
0: I went went hiking today, and the entire trail was a frozen sheet of ice. I don't think you have that in West Palm (laughs) Beach right now.
1: No, we don't have any, but we have some in Virginia where I came from. So, yeah, I have a lot of it in Vermont where I was born. Oh yeah. um, So, what is your podcast?
0: (laughs) The podcast is called "Food of the Gods" and it is about how the
1: gods beautiful.
0: It's about how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance, but we also have gurus episodes, and you are a guru. You are one of the coaches who helps athletes to be their best, so we would like to talk to you about how you do that.
1: Okay, so I got to ask you, who is your father?
0: (laughs) My father is Larry Berra, Yogi's oldest son.
1: Okay. I, w- I used to coach at the University of Connecticut years ago, and I used to watch Dale Barra. And he played at UMass, played D- football. Okay, wait, so now that's Tim,
0: so that's Tim Tim Barra. Tim Barra is the middle Barra. son. He played at okay. UMass, and he actually had rushing records there until very recently. And then Dale is the youngest son, my uncle, and he played for the Pirates and, and the Yankees.
1: Oh, okay, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I remember that a long time ago, back in the early 70s. Yeah? I know, because we're all so old now. <laughs> Okay, wait a minute. I got to get a pen and write that down. (laughs) Food of the gods? Is that what it was? Yeah, I
0: can email it to your wife.
1: Okay, great. That'd be better. Sure. All right. You go ahead and do whatever you want to do and I'll go with you. Okay.
0: All right. Sounds good. All
1: right,
0: okay. So, um, I even mean, basically I just want to, want to talk about your background in sports and how you got where you are and, and how you go around, uh, you know, working with these guys, but I do want to start with you. You were a pretty good athlete yourself, right? You played basketball and lacrosse growing up.
1: I did. Everything, everything in life is relative. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about being a good athlete. Yeah. I, I was a quarterback in football and a shooting guard in basketball. and I mean, I scored 36 points in a college game against Albany State oh. once, and I scored oh. seven goals in a lacrosse game, played the North-South All-Star game, a scratch golfer, was a good tennis player. Uh, so I'm a pretty good athlete, but everyth- like I said, everything is relative. And uh, interestingly, I had a cousin named Sal Soma, who was a great football coach at Dorf High School in Staten Island, New York. And he was good friends with Vince Lombardi. they did a lot of clinics together and that's really how I first started hearing about attitude when I was like in fifth grade and he'd come home for the holidays and I'd be the only person in the family who wanted to hear my cousin Sal's uh, stories um, and uh, that got me interested and then you know when you were the quarterback or the captain of the basketball team or the pitcher on the baseball team, you got to spend a lot of time in coaches' offices and they were always talking about attitude and game players and practice players and how we're going to get kids to believe in themselves. And then I coached for a while at my the Catholic high school I went to. And in the, in, for a year, I taught at an institution for special need children, which was one of the great experiences of my life. And for five summers, I taught swimming at the institution. And most of them didn't have parents that ever came to visit. So anything I believed they could do, they could do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was so easy. Because they didn't have anybody tell them they couldn't do something. And I didn't know enough about special needs kids um, to know that they weren't supposed to be able to do it. Which kind of led a team for the University of Connecticut to come and evaluate my work at the institution. And they offered me a scholarship to grad school, originally in special education. And I said, well, I'd do it if I could get a coaching job and i got a coaching job coaching lacrosse and basketball at the university of high school and um i was fortunate while I, I was there i ended up switching majors to sports psychology and by coaching all the time i was going to graduate school i kind of sorted out what stuff made sense and was applicable and which wasn't and um probably helped me a lot and i really knew the language of coaches and athletes and uh I went from there to the University of Virginia to coach lacrosse and teach sports psychology. And after a few years, uh, they asked me if I would work with all the athletic teams and start a doctoral program. So at that point, about 1980, I left coaching and started working mainly coaching people's heads. And uh, somehow it turned into a career uh, and somehow I ended up working with golfers, which I never (laughs) would have guessed. And a, a quick story on that is I was, doing a basketball clinic in Madison square garden to a couple thousand coaches and someone from golf digest happened to be at the meeting. They liked the talk, asked me if I'd go give a talk to the golf digest advisory board, which was Sam Sneed, Carrie Middlecoff, Paul wow. Runyon, Bob Tosky. They're all great golfers, Davis love Jim flick. And that kind of led to me into the world of golf. And then the teachers were working with some tour players and they'd asked me to help them. And every time I'd work with one, they'd win the next tournament. And I was like, this is cool. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but yeah, because I would never have guessed I was going to be working in golf. My only, I mean, other than playing golf, maybe five times a year as a kid in between baseball and football season, Uh, I caddied some and I got, I did get the caddy for a great player named Bobby Locke who won four British Opens. I was
0: going to ask you about Bobby Locke because I read somewhere that the way he approached the game was another thing that inspired you to study psychology the way he was just so quick about it and did not practice a lot.
1: Yeah. He, um, he told me a story. He said when he was like 16 years old, he decided to want to be a tour golfer or professional. And he asked the best adult, Professional golfer in South Africa. I don't remember his name. And he said the guy told him to design his life around a state of relaxation. Oh, and well, that so sounds Bobby nice. Locke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so Bobby Locke told me that he never again did anything in his life that would cause him stress or pressure. And <laughs> he, he liked to play the mandolin. So he'd hit like two bags of balls, play 18 holes, go in the clubhouse, and basically drink and eat on someone else's dime. And an hour before closing, he'd go get his mandolin out of the car and come in and play it. Might sing a little. Um, and I have a set of his clubs um, that he has the stamp of the British Open, the claret jug, and four stars. I've tried to get some of my other winners to do the same thing, and they found out that the British Open had put a patent on it and you can't do it anymore. And yeah. they were gonna, they were going to have none of that, but. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a lot of fun what's happened in the world of golf. And I I still do a a lot of basketball. I work with Kentucky and Virginia and Miami and work with a lot of NBA players. And that's been a lot of fun because that was, you know, baseball and golf were my first loves as a kid. Um, And, you know, I had a great time with it and uh, did a lot of baseball over the years and a decent amount of football. Still work with a decent number of kickers in the NFL. Um, and that's always been fun. But you know, the kickers are very much like golf. I mean, it's very routinized. And I've always told people two things that you might find interesting. Um, first of all, I still think it's amazing that every pro in college football game that's any good is decided by a field goal kicker I know. who can't play who can't play football. Um <laughs> you go like what other sport would ever let that happen? I mean, it's really pretty bizarre. And the other thing that's fascinating. And see, kicking's easy for guys who are good at it because there's no distance component. All you have to do is hit it through the goalpost, but it doesn't matter how far it goes through the goalpost. Like in golf, when you hit a wedge, it has to be online and it has to go the prescribed distance. Yeah. or Or it's going to cost you. Football, if they ever said you have to go through the goalpost, but it can't go out of the end zone, oh, boy, would it be? People would start guiding and steering and it make it very challenging.
0: That's a very good point because if whether yeah. you're on the 12 yard line or this it's got to make it through but you could hit a 65 yard you know kick a 65 yard field goal from 20 yards and it doesn't make a difference.
1: <laughs> yeah, and the 60 yarder is almost easier because it's okay if you miss. You know, it's like yeah they, sure, they, yeah, they they're more likely to have trouble on an extra point or a 25 yarder. Because God, you gotta be able to make a 25 yarder, you know. And but it's amazing how far they kick it. Like I remember I I, I never was a field goal kicker. Um, you know, I was a quarterback and a safety. And I remember the first time working with it. I went home and I said, Oh, I gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta try this. I was blown away not having played soccer, how hard it is.
0: Oh yeah,
1: to kick. But the kickers that you know they're soccer players. It's amazing how good they are at it. I mean, and how far away they can kick it is—it's it's pretty amazing.
0: I was a soccer player all growing up, oh, and I okay. have a very hard time kicking a football. It's hard really? to make it in the right yeah. way. You got to hit it. You got to—you got to kick it right at the precise. I mean, I'm sure if I spent some time and practice, I would probably get better at it. But it is not easy. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it So, so you i just—you started working with pro golfers. On the mental side of the game in the early 90s i think you were in the, the early 80s
1: early 80s. early
0: 80s you were the um director of sports psychology at uva starting in yep. 1976. by the way i full disclosure i am a tar heel but i like you anyway it's okay well i grew
1: um, up a huge tar <laughs> heel fan a dean smith's daughter got her master's degree under me i just oh, wow. sorry, I, I, i'm a big tar heel fan
0: i played softball at unc and i actually knew my grandfather knew dean so i got a chance to know him too he was a special human Um, He he was a
1: good man, that's for sure. And a heck of a coach. Yeah.
0: So early 80s, you're you're working with athletes on the mental side of the game. This type of coaching has really only recently become widely accepted, widely accessible across sports. So I'm wondering if you were met with resistance back then. Did people think the mental side was a bunch of hooey? Because I know a lot of athletes who even today think they don't need it.
1: You know, I've never had a whole lot of resistance. I I would say coaches and athletes were dying for information and wanting, you know, particularly athletes who wanted to be great. I mean, I tell yeah. people, I, I've spent my life studying the psychology exceptionality. So I'm not in the clinical psychology. I'm mm-hmm. not into abnormal. I'm in the performance psychology. I'm in the positive psychology. I'm into people who are already above normal functioning and want to be great. Yeah which is another way of saying, I want to see how far I can go with the potential that I have. And let's face it, potential is something that hasn't happened yet. But most athletes have experienced, like if you played soccer, you probably had a day where you went, oh my God, I was so awesome today. I would love to be able to play like that every day. I mean, that's a lot of what people are chasing and trying to get closer to that. But it's funny you mentioned being a Tar Heel. I remember in 84, I was traveling with the Virginia team and Ralph Sampson had just left. We were doing a meeting on Sunday. We're going to play the Tar Heels with Michael Jordan and Perkins and Worthy and all those guys on a Monday or Tuesday night. I forget which. And so I'm talking on self-confidence and Tim Mullen on the team stands up and says, doc, did you watch Carolina game the other day? I go, yeah. Did you see Michael Jordan? He drove down the right lane. He hooked the ball at his right hand and he was going by. He threw it down. I've never seen anybody do that. How are we supposed to believe in ourselves against that? <laughs> well, what did you Which, say? I don't remember, but it was a great conversation. We, <laughs> I probably said, screw Michael Jordan. <laughs> I mean, who cares how high he can jump? I, you know, we probably talked about all the things we're going to do. And Michael Jordan's probably back home now worrying about how the heck he's going to play us. And God, if we lose to Virginia, it's going to be awful. And you know what was amazing? We went to the Final Four and they didn't.
0: Did you win and that particular game against, against I, I the Teals?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I have to look that up. But uh, we went to the Final Four and got beat by Elijah on and Houston in the finals. Um, and Carolina didn't, but uh, which is an interesting thing. Um, but Michael was awesome. I mean, he was, you know, it was a joy to watch, that's for sure.
0: How much has the field of mental performance coaching evolved or changed since you became involved?
1: Well, you know, one of my goals was to make it understandable and something that athletes and coaches weren't afraid of and could understand. Because I think always, I mean, if you went back to Lombardi, I mean, he understood how important the mind was. Mm -hmm. Um, And so most coaches have always had a huge impact on players' heads they weren't called sports psychologists, but the best coaches always had an impact on players' heads. Um, you know, your, your grandfather understood the role. I mean, I always said one of his greatest quotes was, I mean, when I'm when, when people asked him, what are you thinking about when you're hitting good? And he said, when I'm hitting good, you can't think. You
0: can't, mean, think, he, and can't he, think and hit at the same time. Yep. Yeah,
1: he understood it. You know, I mean, so it's been around a long time. It's just a matter of when people started calling it sports psychology And I think as a culture, we tend to be a little afraid of psychology. Why we're not afraid of the body, but we're afraid of the mind, I don't know. But um, I I haven't had any problem with people being receptive to it. Um, But I also don't go push it on people. I mean, my, my work with teams, my experience is if the coaches are receptive and want it, then it's great. If the, like, if the GM wants it and the coach doesn't want it, I don't even want to bother because it ain't going to work very well. Um, so I think you have to have a working relationship, you know, with the coaches um, and, but most players, I mean, when they understand that we're talking about confidence, concentration, composure, you know, believing in yourself at a level that most of the world will never understand. Um, I mean, most athletes, they just want to get better and they're going to do whatever they have to do to get better. And this is one way, but it doesn't mean that physical training isn't important. I've always told people that that's important. I mean, working hard, being dedicated, committed, but you can work your tail off. And if you don't believe in yourself, um, what good is it? I remember years ago I did a 500 student performance psychology class And we were doing a session on confidence. And a gal on our lacrosse team, after a 45-minute lecture, she says, Dr. Rotella? I said, yes, young lady? She said, "Uh, well, I I really liked what you were talking about, but um, I'm a Christian, and this seems to be very much against my Christian upbringing. I said, like, what do you mean? She said, well, all my belief is through God, and this seems like you want it to come through me. And I looked at her, and I said, Well, I'm a Christian just like you. She said, oh. And I said, I don't think God would have given you free will to choose how you think about your potential and your talent if God didn't want you to believe in yourself. And she said, go on. And I said, well, if you step on the lacrosse field and every time you do that, you go. Oh, God, all the other girls have all the talent. God, why didn't you give me good stuff like you gave them? How could that be praising God? And she looked at me and went, oh, my God. I never thought about it like that. I said, well, that's why I brought it up. And she said, go on. And I said, well, think how confident Jesus must have been when he turned all over the tables in the temple when they were gambling. They probably weren't too happy about that. That's a pretty good attitude. And she says, go on. And I said, well, if you really want me to go on, how about your Jesus and your father calls down from heaven and says, hey, kid, I'm going to have you crucified and die on the cross to save the sins of the world. But don't worry, I'm going to rise you from the dead. Everything's going to be okay. I think you think that took a pretty good attitude. (laughs) You think that took believing and, you know, and we had a great talk after class about it. And I said, you know, it's the best way to praise the Lord is to believe in yourself. So it doesn't have anything to do with being Christian or non-Christian. And I don't really care how you get there, Mm -hmm. but if you believe in yourself and win lacrosse championships then you can go visit a children's hospital and make all the kids in the hospital feel better about themselves. That'd be a great way to praise the Lord and thank for all the gifts you were given. But if you don't utilize the gifts to do wonderful things for other people, what good is it? You know? And she got it.
0: That's really cool. So, I mean, you do
1: a lot of different ways of going about it, you know? so
0: yeah. You've worked. So you're talking about a lacrosse player now and you've, you've, Obviously, worked with so many different sports. Is yep. it, are, are certain sports more difficult in your opinion mentally than others, or is mastering your own mind a skill that is independent of the specific tasks you perform?
1: Well, that's a great question. I get asked that a lot, and I always tell people, Well, if you're playing basketball and you're trying to stop Steph Curry or LeBron James, it's a pretty good mental challenge. If you know, you're, you're trying to hit the baseball against the best pitcher in baseball, pretty good mental challenge. If you're pitching to Yogi Berra, it's a pretty good challenge, you know? Um, if you're playing football against the best football players in the world, it's going to test your mind. If you're playing golf now, it's different in that you're on your own by yourself. I just had a gentleman who's a world-class show jumper equestrian lead hmm. and guys and girls compete directly against each other in that sport yes um and they have to deal with believing in themselves and believing in their horse so that has its uniqueness but somehow the horse knows what the rider's thinking you know? i tell the golfers you have to approach the game as if the ball knows what you're thinking Cause the ball is probably going to go wherever you think it. And you better be thinking the right stuff. <laughs> Ain't you know?
0: that the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you're playing soccer and the first shot on goal, they score and you're the goalie pretty good test. So, I mean, I think every sport is very mental. People want to get into, well, what if it's a reaction sport versus a sport like golf where you have time? I said, well, just cause they give you time. You don't have to use it to think. Um, I think Steph Curry's probably the best I've ever seen. I mean, he's like catching the ball at midcourt and shooting it almost before he catches it. He may be the most unconscious, freed up athlete at that level. Mm. I mean, I marvel watching him. He plays with so much joy. It's pretty amazing. And I I think as athletes evolve, it's amazing watching. They're just getting better and better.
0: Um, I, I work um, a lot with uh, Tom House, the pitching coach.
1: Yeah, okay. and, uh,
0: Tom talks a lot about the power of play and how we kind of lose that joy as we get older. But if you're in that in that state where you really are just having fun and you're not worried about outcome, how much better the outcome ends up
1: being? Yeah. The reason is when you're having fun, it's a lot easier to go unconscious and be process oriented. The moment you get serious, you turn on your conscious brain and get outcome oriented and no one plays their best that way, you know? And it's scary for people to turn off Mm -hmm. their conscious brain. It's like, it's very, we don't have a very good language for even talking about not thinking. I mean, I, the best way I can describe it is I want you to play with your eyes and your instinct. In other words, I want you to just look and react. Um, You know, it's, we'd like to not have the brain get in between looking and reacting. And Mm -hmm. so when you're having fun, it's a lot easier to do that. That's why you see so many athletes put the pods or the headphones on and the whole purpose, you know, like some coaches that don't get it, think they're screwing off or they're not concentrating or they're not getting ready. They're actually getting ready the correct way. They're getting unconscious. And Mm -hmm. if they have the right music and they get it, that the whole idea of the music is to get them to go unconscious. And some music is pretty good for doing that. Um, Yeah, that's what we're after.
0: I think that what's hard for people who don't do this all the time to really understand, though, is when you try to put outcome aside and really be in the moment like professional athletes it is their job to be concerned about outcome and overall of course they care whether they win or lose but in the moment they can't be hung up on the outcome so how where do you draw the lines and how do you teach that how do you teach someone to make that distinction to let go of outcome when they need to do that
1: well it's a great question all all great athletes when they're playing, have to learn to totally dissociate from the outcome and just be lost in the process of seeing and doing and playing, as you said. um, You have to understand that I'm doing this because I want to get an outcome, but you can't care about the outcome while you're doing it, Mm -hmm. which is why it's hard for people to understand. And you combine that with an English language that isn't very good for talking about not thinking. Uh, that's part of it. It's like, so do we say, I want you to play with your eyes and your instinct. Do I want you to tell you go unconscious? Do I want you to say, don't think Do we, we tell them, I don't want you. You can't care. You got to feel like it doesn't matter. You got to make it feel like the competition's irrelevant. We talk about you're competing against yourself in the game. We're competing against our own standards. We're not, we don't care about them. Sometimes we talk about making, I mean, the, the other team invisible and irrelevant. Uh, they don't have anything to do with us. Um, and, and it's interesting, like with the basketball teams, we want to compete against ourselves because if you compete against the opponent, if you have a inferior opponent, you'll play worse and you'll play down to their level, mm-hmm. play a great opponent. You might play up to their level and you're all over the place with your performance. So we're trying to play against ourselves and our standards and our execution. And it's almost like we make doing that for 40 minutes more important than the outcome of the game. Now, do we assume if we do that really well, we're going to win a lot of games? Yep. Um, But we don't want to be thinking about it while we're playing. And, you know, the problem is the TV is constantly talking about outcome. Mm -hmm. All they talk about is all the ways you could win or lose all the things we could do to screw it up um, or blow the game or whatever. And it makes it interesting to the audience. Athletes are trying to get the game boring and mundane so they can just play. And, you know, we see it in the Olympics that are going on now. I mean, all you have to do is try too hard or try to be perfect or think you have to be perfect. Like I would say most of my athletes play their best, when I tell them all you have to do is play average. Now think about it. You asked me about Michael Jordan and Atari. The idea that all I have to do is play average to beat them. Well, it allows you, you we, we talk that way because it allows you to just go play basketball. Mm-hmm. If you get in awe of other players, and we can come up with a lot of reasons for being awe of players of that caliber, um, all of a sudden you'll press you'll overthink because you're convinced they're really good. I can't make mistakes if I want to beat them. And then you're dead. I mean, if you try and play a sport where you think I have to be perfect in order to be successful, you're probably not going to be very successful. (laughs) And and that's just so against our upbringing. Think about our upbringing. You know, most of us are brought up by families that tell us if you want to be successful you got to be disciplined dedicated you know you got to try hard you got to care a lot you got to really focus you got a lot you know and then it's like on game night you got to just go play but that's
0: it's hard that's it's counterintuitive yes
1: <laughs> very counterintuitive i think that's a great word for it you're a brilliant
0: young lady, I can see that. <laughs> I, I say this a lot when I talk to the guys who who coach mental skills stuff. Like I, I watched my grandpa play for so long, and, and I was a youth athlete when when he was still coaching, and he was the most not attached to outcome I've ever seen because he and he was so able to leave anything that happened at the ballpark. And he used to tell me that if you're thinking about all the things you did wrong and beating yourself. Self up about it rather than figuring out what you need to be better next time you're never going to be able to play the next game because you're still stuck in the last game and what the way people would talk about it today was that he was more concerned with process than outcome and he was always bringing it back to process with why did that happen what do you need to do better and he really was kind of a, a, a he was ahead of his time with it I think <laughs>
1: So I was correct when all these years I've been telling people that Yogi Bear was a true genius. <laughs> and they were thinking he was saying crazy. I said, no, he was a genius. He got it a long time ago. Yeah. And I loved hearing what you just said, because I think most great athletes and coaches also got it a long time ago. But it's so hard to talk about. And back then, a lot of people didn't, you know, talked about it with you, but he probably didn't talk about it with a lot of other people publicly. And, and the media doesn't talk about it a lot because it's, you know, I I remember at the last Olympics, Kevin Durant before the uh, gold medal game, he had had two pretty lousy games for him and they interviewed him and he went on TV and said, I'm going to play tomorrow in the gold medal game, like I don't care and it doesn't matter. I just want to go have fun playing basketball. And I was on the road and I remember Stephen A. Smith was on TV and X on ESPN, and he ripped him to shreds, and said, mm-hmm. "That's why he's not a great one. That's not why he's not a winner. That's why he has to keep changing teams instead of helping." It. And I'm like, "Oh God, he doesn't, he doesn't understand what he was saying, you know." Yeah. And you know, and I think that's what makes it difficult. Is it's not the only reason it's difficult, but it's just let's face it: when you want something really badly to go out and play as if you don't care and it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I often use the example. It's like when you're in college and you meet the guy of your dreams for the first time and he walks up to you and starts talking and you, you just can't, you can't remember your name. You don't know if you should, should I tell him I play soccer or shouldn't I, you know, it's like, you, and he walks away and you go, Oh God, every time I meet a guy, I really like, you know, he doesn't like me. And I go, no, he liked you. That's why he came over and talked to you, but you didn't trust enough yourself enough to be yourself. And he goes, Oh God, she was nothing like I thought she was. So mm-hmm. he, he didn't really get to meet you. And, you know, so there's a lot of things. Like I grew up playing the clarinet because um, my mom and dad really thought we ought to play a musical instrument. First time you do a performance for the school and the aunts and uncles and the parents and the, your classmates. I mean, you either hear the song and just let it happen or you screw it all up. So, I mean, learning music was really good for learning about what we now call process. Yeah. But, you know, Nike... I'm not on a Nike staff, but someone at Nike a long time ago was pretty sharp to come up with a slogan, just do it. Just do it.
0: This concludes part one of our interview with Dr. Bob Rotella. Be sure to check out part two. For more information on Dr. Rotella, visit his website at www.rotellaperformanceworkshops.com. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at podcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.